If you're a North Korean news aficionado like me, you probably came across the NK News website well before discovering the podcast. It's an incredible source that gets you behind the headlines to give you what's probably the most reliable and evidence-based news on North Korea. Every business day, you'll get between 5 to 10 articles that provide exclusive news, detailed analysis, and informed opinions. And guess what? Each week, they send you forward-looking week-ahead briefings and news alerts to keep you ahead of the curve. There's more. NK News members also get special reader-only benefits, access to exclusive events and online conferences, and perpetual access to our archive of podcasts. And here's the best part. You can get a $100 discount on your annual subscription with the code PODCAST. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org slash discount. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. Today, for our short interview on a recent news story, I'm talking with NK News newshound Ifang Bremer. Ifang, welcome on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. You have spent much of the last week working on a story for NK Pro about prison upgrades in China, uh, which will be published in a few hours after this recording is made. But you allowed me to get a sneak preview of the draft. So thank you for that. Tell me why this is an NK Pro story. What's the relevance of Chinese prison upgrades to North Korea? Right. So the context is that there will be a Congressional Executive uh, Commission on China hearing uh, in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday morning local time about North Koreans who face forced repatriation in China back to North Korea. And uh, Hannah Song of the uh, Database Center for North Korean Human Rights, uh, she asked me to look into changes on the ground based on uh, their information of where defectors have been detained before their forced repatriation in the past. So that's the context here, yeah. Okay, and how many prison facilities are we or detention facilities are we talking about? Well, along the border, roughly, there are uh, there are six main facilities where North Koreans have been detained in the past before their repatriation. But if you look a little bit further away, there are mo- there are maybe like more than ten uh-huh. uh, facilities in the vicinity of the North Korean border. Now, do, do these facilities only house North Korean people who are found to be illegally present in China? Some do, and some are general prisons. Yeah. Okay. All right. What's the source for the this information? Is it uh, satellite imagery or, or, or people on the ground? What's Where are you getting this from? Right. So what I did uh, is I looked at prisons where North Koreans have been detained in the past, and I used satellite imagery to compare how big they used to be before COVID, uh, how many uh, uh, buildings are there on the premises, how many walls. And then I looked since 2020 if they've expanded or not. Uh, because as we know, North Korea closed its borders in 2020. And uh, UN Special Rapporteur on North Korean Human Rights has expressed concern repeatedly that an increasing number of North Koreans are being detained in China because they cannot be sent back to North Korea. Right. Okay, so the numbers of North Korean citizens who have been uh, in China who are detained by the government have they gone up dramatically uh, during the pandemic? Right. So we don't know the exact number, but uh, you have to imagine that before the pandemic, China was able to, on a rolling basis, yeah. forcibly repatriate these North Koreans. 
since 2020, they have not been able to do that. So estimates range that between 600 and 2,000 North Koreans are currently held in Chinese prisons awaiting their repatriation. Give me that number again. Between 600 and 2,000. So the the UN Special Rapporteur's latest estimate was 1,500 people. Right. Okay, so we have a rise in that number on the outlet side because uh, China can't repatriate them to North Korea. Is there also evidence of an increased attempt to round them up on the on the inlet side? Is there a crackdown in, in China on North Koreans? Are, are these normal figures? I think these are normal figures. So basically, China's policy is when Chinese police encounters undocumented North Koreans, yep. they will uh, send them back to North Korea because China maintains the stance that North Korean defectors come to China for economic reasons, mm-hmm. therefore disqualifying them for refugee protection. So yeah, this they, always Chinese police has detained North Koreans when they encounter them. Right. Uh, but the past few months, there have been a couple of reports of larger groups of North Korean defectors being detained. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. And, and as you say, this position of the Chinese government that North Koreans are simply economic migrants, that's been a consistent line for more than 20 years. Yes, that's right. So what, what's the, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on North Korean Human Rights position? What's, uh, what's she said about all this? Well, not just she, Elizabeth Salmon, but also uh, many uh, NGOs and activists have expressed concern because you have to imagine that these North Korean defectors are being held in circumstances that we don't know how they are in China. And once they're repatriated, they will almost certainly face detention, possible torture, some even execution, according to the special rapporteur. Okay, so, well, let's start with the conditions. What, yes. Uh, do we have any evidence, uh, testimony of North Korean refugees about conditions in these detention centers? Yeah, so uh, we know from testimonies by uh, NKDB, the Seoul-based NGO, and also other testimonies that circumstances in Chinese prison tend to be a little bit better than in North Korea, but still... There have been accounts of a very intense interrogation, lack of proper food. Those kind of things are definitely present. But the bigger problem is that we don't, we simply don't know, right? Uh, the international community is not allowed access to these prisons. Mm-hmm. Right? So we don't know under what circumstances these North Koreans are have been held, some of them presumably for years now. Yeah. And the incredibly sad and tragic thing is that the fate, their fate in the, it back in the DPRK will probably be worse, right? So mm. uh, what they can expect once they'll be repatriated is probably uh, even worse than how they're living right now in China. Right. Uh, are there allegations of uh, specific human rights violations occurring at these Chinese detention facilities? Uh, well, right now, and that's also the problem that NGOs face, is that there are no testimonies from North Koreans who are currently being detained mm. because obviously... Uh, none of them have escaped, like literally escaped the prison. Right. So that's the whole problem now is that yeah. we lack insight. And as far as we know, the, the facilities have been expanded mostly because of the, the need to hold North Korean, larger numbers of North Koreans for longer periods of time during and after the pandemic. Is that well, right? Well, this is a hypothesis, uh-huh. but we know for sure that at least one facility, which sole purpose is to detain North Koreans. Yep has expanded, ah. which is literally located right at the border. So you have to imagine there's a prison, yep. and then there's a river, and then on the other side of the river is North Korea. Ah. And this is a prison, yeah, in the past, which only purpose was to imprison North Koreans before they're sent back. Yep. There have been several buildings added to that prison. Is that near the city of Dandong? Uh, no, it's quite on the other side of North Korea. It's uh, near the city of Munsan. Okay, so it's much further north, uh, northeast of, uh, of Dandong. 
I wonder, I'm sure you don't have any information on this, but just uh, as a matter of curiosity, I wonder whether the, there's a link to those construction projects in, in those detention centers and the ones at the camps that, that house the Uyghurs in the far west of China. I mean, it would, would be interesting if it's the same construction companies that are doing this kind of work, wouldn't it? Right, yeah, I haven't looked into that. Um, yeah, but you can definitely see that uh, Chinese prisons have a uh, kind of similar yeah. setup. Right, with watchtowers and... and, and exactly, yeah. 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 Going back to what happens to, generally to North Korean people after they've been repatriated to the North Korean government, you've mentioned everything from further imprisonment to possible executions. Does North Korea actually have a specific law on what happens to, to people once they've uh, escaped from North Korea? I don't know. Okay. No, that, that's fine. <laughs> um, but I, uh, what I know um, is that what North Korea, what the North Korean government does mm -hmm. to defectors who have been repatriated differs. Right. So they'll be interrogated. Yeah. They'll presumably uh, check what the reason was that the North Koreans left North Korea in the first place. Yep. And uh, whether their family members involved, mm -hmm. uh, whether they've been engaged in other crimes, uh, whether they were purely there for economic reasons or presumably for ideological reasons they've left the country. Right, and, and another element that we've heard over the years is that uh, if they have met with South Koreans, and specifically if they've met with South Korean missionaries, then that can also add to their punishment. Yes, that's correct, yeah, yeah. Okay, so basically since January 2020, so three and a half years ago, uh, North Korean people, whether they're escapees, defectors, uh, economic migrants, or overseas laborers, they haven't been sent back to North Korea as far as we know, have they? Yes, that's yeah. correct. So we, we may see a whole lot of them sent back in large numbers when the border between uh, China and North Korea reopens. Yeah, so this is the big concern mm. uh, of NGOs at the moment and also the UN, that once the border reopens, and North Korea hasn't reopened the border for uh, people yet, but once it will, um, that we will see a presumably large number of North Koreans crossing the border from China, uh, awaiting their forced detention in uh North Korean prison camps. So this is, yeah, it's, it's really a tragic story. Yeah. yeah. Have uh, appeals been made to the governments of the People's Republic of China and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea by the UN or NGOs, as far as you know? Yeah, yeah, numerous times. Uh, so recently, the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women mm. confronted Chinese officials about these repatriations in Geneva but, yeah, Chinese officials just keep maintaining the stance that North Koreans come to China for economic reasons and that uh, especially when they've been engaged in crimes within China, which is, you know, the bar for committing a crime in China is quite low because they're literally there undocumented, right. so that's already so being a crime. There is a crime, yeah. Yes, mm. uh, they will be sent back to their country, yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, have there been any, other, any responses from the North Korean government at all? Uh, no, as far as I uh, know... Uh, been. Now, th this uh, reporting this story took you quite some time. There's obviously a lot of hard work involved in looking uh, at uh, granular detail on on satellite imagery, trying to count buildings and, and walls and, and things mm. like that over time. Is this your first time to do a story like that with that kind of reporting? Uh, no, I've I've used satellite imagery in the past, but as you say, it's it's a very uh, yeah tedious task. Right. I've, I've tried looking at some satellite imagery just, you know, with Google Maps and stuff, and I find it, it's very hard for my eyes to, to make sense of the data. Is there, have you trained yourself to do this? How do you do it? Well, it helps if you have uh, high resolution ah. uh, imagery. Um, so that enables you to actually 
identify certain structures. So yeah. the difference between a watchtower and a normal building, for example. Yeah. Uh, but it's also just a matter of luck. So one right. facility uh, I couldn't find in any database, huh. but it was cl- uh, located so close to North Korea. And it was an obvious prison. So it was exactly right. the same layout as any other Chinese prison. Yeah. So in that case, it was just a matter of scrolling down the North mm. Korean border. Really just, just scrolling along the yeah. river, on the north side of the river, and just looking for any buildings you see. Exactly. And wow. then once you identify one of those buildings, you yeah. can go back in time yeah. with historical yeah. satellite imagery to see the changes between dates. That's really useful. And shadows, are they probably helpful to you to determine things like height of buildings and stuff like that? Yes, that's right. And sometimes uh, some satellite images have a little bit of a 3D mm. uh, outlook, so you can sometimes even count windows, those kind of things. Wow. Yeah, so you're looking at, the, you really want to see those small details, but some, some things are really obvious, like a big structure, you can easily spot that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and is this a story that you'll be following up uh, in the future? Yes, for sure, yeah. I think many people look at what's happening on the North Korean side of right. the Sino-Korean border. Much less research has been done on what's happening at the Chinese side. So the in- increase in watchtowers, those kind of things. Yeah, so I'll definitely be look- looking into this more. Yeah, this I may be getting ahead of you here, but is there any evidence that on the North Korean side that the North Korean government has uh, set up any new camps or expanded camps to receive these people when they're repatriated? I haven't look at, looked into that yet. Okay. We know that uh, North Korea has increased the number of fences mm-hmm. and just made it much more difficult for North Koreans to actually come close to the Chinese border. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the other interesting thing will be to see whether the, the repatri- repatriates will have to go through some period of quarantine in another facility before they're even allowed into Exactly. Uh, prison. Yeah, the, I, I, I'm not sure what the policy will be. Right. Okay, well, that's all something to keep an eye on. Uh, thank you very much, Ifang Bremer, for coming on the, uh, the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Listeners, stay tuned for my interview with Carl Friedhoff after this. Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org podcast. Today is Thursday, June 1st, 2023, and I'm joined in the NK News studio by Carl Friedhoff to talk about how South Korean citizens feel about a range of issues. Please remember, listeners, to leave a review about this podcast on whatever platform you use and share this episode with everyone who you think should hear it and who might be interested and what's more like. And subscribe and follow NK News Org on Twitter and myself at JackOZ. Now, to introduce my guest today properly... Carl Friedhoff is the Marshall M. Bouton, have I got that right, fellow for Asia Studies at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Prior to his work at the Council, 
He was based in Seoul, where he was a program officer in the Public Opinion Studies program at the Asan Institute for Policy Studies. He researches U.S. foreign policy in Asia, South Korea's politics, and international relations in East Asia. You can find Carl on Twitter at Carl Friedhoff, finishing with two Fs, and we'll put a link there in the show notes. Welcome on the show, Carl. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. So as I mentioned in the uh, in the intro, you do a lot of study of public opinion polling, don't you? Uh, yeah, that's right. So I've been, I think I first got into the public opinion side of, of research in about 2010, 2011, when I was at the Asan Institute, and then have steadily worked in, in that field and how it relates to foreign policy, and especially domestic politics here as well. Good. Yeah. Could you expand a bit on a bit more on, on that and, and sort of helping us to understand why it's worthwhile to, to research public opinion? So I find the, the public opinion angle to be very interesting in the fact that you can really see how the, the domestic politicians are going to play certain issues, right? And, you know, I think especially if, if you're following North Korea, hmm. there's a tendency to focus on the security side of this and to assume, especially I find this abroad, that because North Korea takes up so much of the, the kind of media that you would assume that in South Korea, well, it must be as big a deal. Right, it must be one of the dominating factors for for elections. It right. must be kind of continually talked about. And the reality is, when you start to look at priorities uh, domestically, North Korea very rarely rates, and it doesn't drive elections either. That's true. Although any visitor who arrived in Korea just yesterday, or say the night before, for our listeners there, yesterday morning at six thirty, we were rudely woken up in Seoul by an air raid siren. Did you get that out in Songdo as well? No, we did not. I heard that Incheon didn't have it, which is strange because Incheon's closer to the coast. But by anyway, forty to forty-five kilometers or so. There was some uh, communication mess up between the Interior Ministry, Ministry of Interior and Safety, and and the Seoul Metropolitan Government, leading to everybody in Seoul being rudely roused from their sleep at 6.30 with an air raid siren and a message to uh, seek shelter or prepare to seek shelter. Uh, meanwhile, there in, in Incheon, it didn't happen. But anyway, so anyone arriving yesterday might think, oh, yes, people are worried about North Korea all the time. But actually, you're right. Most people don't even think about it most of the time. Yeah, and in most of the past elections as well, it rarely comes up. Of course, we see that a lot of the presidential candidates, when they, when they are preparing their candidacy, they're going through the debates, uh, you know, they're, they're in the media, what they're talking about. There's often North Korea and how they're going to take a strong line or if they're going to engage. Uh, but, you know, for as much as they talk about it, the, the public is just not there. And, and yeah. like, like everywhere, it's about, about retail politics. You know, what's going to affect their, their pocketbooks? Is real estate up? Is real estate down? Is inflation right. up? Is inflation down? Uh, North Korea just doesn't really come into it these days. Now, an opinion poll is, by its nature, a, a snapshot of a moment. Uh, now, how important is it to look at a moment in time? And, and what about the importance of looking at broader trends sort of longitudinally? Right. So that's one of the things that we really try to do is, is do both at the same time. And, you know, a lot of that comes if you have a steady source of funding that you can at least ask a question as a snapshot one time, but then you want to ask it continually over time. Same question wording. You try to try to isolate it from events. If you can, that can be uh, exceedingly difficult. But then you get a real chance to see how things are, are moving over time. And then you have a sense of how reactive certain issues are, what the salience right. is, how they come, how they go. And I think, you know, as it's related to North Korea, one of the things that we've seen is that initially public reaction, you know, going back to the first nuclear test. Mm, or, 2006. Yeah, or the shelling of Yonpyeong Island, something like that, or, or Chunan also 2010. Yep. There we saw quick, or quite, you could see quite uh, sharp reactions mm. for, for public opinion, especially in 2010 and later, which is after I started, started doing the, the opinion polling. But since then, the, the public is much less reactive to anything that North Korea does. 
And so there's speculation about, you know, what would North Korea need to do mm-hmm. to really drive the public to, to care about it? And those already get into scary scenarios. Like yesterday, the, the air raid sirens yep. that were going off, those aren't going to drive concerns about North Korea. Those are going to actually, the frustrations about that, especially for people in Seoul, mm. are going to be aimed at the, the president yep. and the domestic administration here in Seoul. Yeah, yeah, definitely saw uh, quite a lot of, or heard quite a lot of that yesterday, uh, also on Twitter. Do you think North Korea thinks about such things? I mean, the leadership of North Korea, when they're uh, planning what they do, do you think they want to, you know, what will break through the noise and, and, and reach the people in South Korea and, and get them either uh, desiring, you know, some sort of North Korean-led unification or uh, afraid of us and, uh, you know, clamoring for, for something from their leaders? So we, we used to hear a lot about that, right? Especially around election times, they would try to supposedly interfere to try mm. to sway elections so they could get their preferred candidate. I've always been a skeptic of that, uh, just because even if they're trying to do it, again, the, the, the South Korean public doesn't really care that much uh, about North Korea, right? They, they kind of see it, and this is especially true, I think, among the younger populations, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, the, the younger population, the 20s and 30s, they actually kind of see North Korea as a punchline, right? So they're not looking at North Korea as a potential reunification partner mm. in some of the polling that we do, or we look at uh, asking asking the public to define is North Korea kind of this word Uri one of us right uh, are they a neighbor are they an enemy you know, increasingly younger pop, the younger populations in South Korea are looking at at North Korea as either just you know a neighbor or as an actual enemy and very yeah. few are saying you know they they are one of us kind of ethnically bound and therefore kind of implying that unification should take place. Yeah, coming back to uh, to longitudinal studies, uh, the annual uh, Korea Institute for National Unification. Uh, releases these, you know, th- these uh, surveys of exactly that. To how do people feel about unification? And it's really interesting to see a uh, a steady downward trend over the last twenty years in feelings about must unification take place. You know, the, the sort of necessity of unification as a national project. And I'm sure you, you've looked at that too, right? Sure, I look closely at the the Kinu studies. The 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 man who runs them is is Lee Sang Shin, mm. uh, Doctor Lee. I think he was. He's been on the podcast. Oh, he has. Some, some years ago. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah. Um, I know that he was just in the field recently with his, his most recent survey. I haven't seen the results. Maybe they're, they're still uh, writing those out. Mm. Uh, but yeah, you know, the, that downward trend has been really interesting. And I think part of that is that obviously you have people who are aging out. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's, I guess, the euphemism for, for they're no longer around. Dying off. <laughs> Dying off. Right. Uh, but yeah, as the younger people in the 20s and the 30s, yeah. they're, they're just not as interested. And one of the big issues that comes up when we do the polling about that is who's going to pay for it. Yeah. You know, we've seen some of the estimates. You might know the estimates that come out of, I think it was Goldman Sachs years ago, mm-hmm. had, had a big estimate of what unification would cost. And I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it was large. But I think didn't also wasn't it also Goldman Sachs or somebody you know in that that tier of, of the financial world who said that unification will bring a big a big windfall to uh, to Korea in terms of uh, natural resources and labor that suddenly open up. So uh, uh, yeah, yeah I they, think it was a net positive if I recall. Yeah, that that might be true, and they wouldn't be alone. Uh, Park and Hay had had something similar uh, right. along those lines. Yeah. Uh, well, also our uh, one of our guests on the on the podcast uh, a few years ago, uh, Rudiger Frank, mm-hmm. now at the University of Vienna. Uh, he very strongly argued, uh, and I'd like to get him back on the show again. If you're listening, Rudiger, please get back in touch. Uh, strongly argued that really because of the way that that the money won't be leaving Korea; it just moves around a unified Korea. It's not actually a net cost in a way. It, it's interesting. Yeah, that that might be true. And if that that is the case, there's probably a good a good case for for the government to start kind of pushing that message out because mm. the youth have clearly not gotten. They not gotten it, yeah. they think that they're on the hook for whatever this is going right. to be. 
And I think the other piece of this is, you know, to any of anyone who's followed Korea for a while, you realize that, you know, Korean society is very kind of pressurized. It's mm. very competitive. Mm. And so jobs can be scarce. And I think that's another issue for, for younger Koreans. They may see those as potential competitors. Right. Um, I don't think that's quite right, obviously, because, you know, the education gap is going wow. to be there. The skills gap is going yep. to be there. So whether they are or are not competitors is kind of beside the point. I think it's mostly about perceptions of how young people uh, don't want to pay for it. Right. And be suddenly suddenly see maybe cheaper labor coming in yep. and doing things that that they would would potentially do as well. Now, what is the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and why does it care about how South Koreans feel about issues? Uh, so, the Chicago Council is a membership-driven organization, a nonprofit think tank, uh, based obviously, as the name would suggest, in Chicago. Is that where you spend most of your time? Uh, increase it well. So, it's a little bit complicated to go through all of that. Okay. <laughs> it's uh, uh, back and forth here back and, and forth. Uh, here and there. Yep. But you know, the reason I think that they they care about the South Korean part is number one, you know, we can get the funding to do it. Yep. Uh, and you know, I because of my my past work uh, being based here. You know, I'm, I'm trying to continue to do that. I think there's a lot of uh, good work to be done uh, in South Korea in terms of public opinion. And I think there's a pretty significant consumer base uh, for it. You know, we see a lot mm. of the polling numbers coming out of Korea, but there are very few people, I think, who are doing a good job of analyzing the data, mm. putting it into a broader context, and then also being able to say, well, this is a good poll. This is a bad poll, you know, yep. looking at the question wording in, in detail and, and tying all of that stuff together. And so, you know, we, we do... Uh, our big annual survey at, at the Chicago Council is just on American public opinion. Yep. And then we have some slices of that, that that look at how Americans think about Korea as well. And so then we like to do the opposite uh, mm. side of this. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll seek funding for, for some of the polls. I think the most recent one we did was, you know, South Korean attitudes on nuclear weapons, yep. which uh, we, talk about. Yeah. we published in early 2022 and still continues to, to kind of uh, have traction both yeah. here and in the U.S. Well, it's certainly uh, at at your former employer, the Asan Institute, uh, which puts together a, a a carefully curated plenum of number of panels, uh, a lot of whom express positive voices about uh, South Korea getting nuclear weapons or at least stationing U.S. nuclear weapons here. Yeah, but we'll get back into that in a moment. Uh, let's start off with President Yoon's popularity rose above forty percent according to poll results uh, it released in late May. Do you think this is a sign of a lasting trend or is it a transitory phenomenon? I mean, basically, is his support base growing? Whether or not it's growing, um, you know, it's really difficult, difficult to answer. I haven't looked at all the numbers most recently. Uh, I tend to think that his floor is 30 to 33 percent. That's mm -hmm. basically where he's going to be at the bottom. Uh, the fact that he's now above 40 percent. Mm. Yeah, it's not terribly surprising just because anyone who followed his early presidency could see that it was a train wreck, essentially, from the beginning, right? There were all kinds of scandals that they were continually not only pushing to the side, but were extending them mm. in, in certain ways, right? Through statements, through, through uh, just basic confusion. And so, of course, those were going to, to start tanking the numbers, and he was often at his, his uh, media floor. base. Yeah. Um, so he was playing to his base, and what has happened since is most, a lot of that has stopped. Mm -hmm. right? So there hasn't been as many scandals that I've seen. Uh, there haven't been as many long-lasting kind of gaffes. Gaffes, yeah. Uh, those, those things have ceased. I think that partly coincides since he stopped his doorstepping. Kind of the conferences that he was, the impromptu press conferences he was holding each day as he was entering, uh, in, entering the, the office for, for the workday. Right. So that has been pushed aside. But in general, you know, there was a, a very steep one-year learning curve. It seems that mm. now there's been progress mm -hmm. on that. 
And now they're getting on with kind of the administrative uh, side of the job, you know, and I think all of that is going to lead into the elections next year for the National Assembly, which are really key to his presidency. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the uh, his recent visit to Washington worked well for him? So we looked at that, or we didn't look at that. I looked at that through the Gallup Korea polling numbers, yep. and they had some 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 data out on that, and it was basically net neutral. Interesting. That it was something something along the lines of forty to forty five percent said that you know there was no benefit to the country hmm. uh, from the visit, and forty to forty five percent said that it was a positive hmm. outcome. Wow, so they really cancel each other out. Yeah, essentially. And so, but it, it, I think you know this is all what it's coming down to. Essentially, his presidency is now just a Rorschach test. If you like him yeah. and his presidency, everything he does, you're going to like. If you don't like him from the beginning, everything he does, you're going to see as a disaster. Mm. That may be starting to change somewhat if his approval rates are ticking up and getting into to 40 or 40% plus somewhat. But I think that that basic premise is still going to hold. God, I don't know whether Simon and Garfunkel knew a lot about uh, polling when they wrote their songs, but it's certainly true that a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. <laughs> Uh, is this a sign of well, the, the increasing popularity? Is it a sign that he's a bold move to try to end the forced labor and comfort issue at home while restoring positive relations with Japan has paid off? I don't think we can say that through the polling data. Yep. Okay. Right? So the polling data certainly doesn't point to that. You know, we've known from the beginning, as soon as he started to, to make that push uh, to resolve you know, the, the forced labor issue, 60 percent in almost every poll, which is very unusual. So 60 mm. percent from almost every poll was saying that they thought uh, they disapproved of the deal overall. Hmm. Uh, and that was responsible, I think, for, for keeping his numbers depressed even longer. Right. You know, so they were down at, at 30%, 31%, as, as we've already talked about. Uh, what was interesting is that they didn't drive his numbers lower. Hmm. Right? And again, because he was already at the floor. Yeah, yeah. And his base, earlier in his presidency, his base was a little less solid, but he's taken steps to kind of solidify that through kind of attacks on on the media, um, dealing with the Democratic Party rather harshly by kind of unleashing, unleashing the prosecutors and taking control of his, his own party. And I think that has brought his base uh, into a more solid kind of foundation. And now he, he is slowly growing it from there. But whether or not the, the Japan deal did that, I'd be, I'd be very surprised if you could link that back or if that has any impact on, on his approval rates. Given that uh, consistent disapproval rating of about 60% across all the different polling, what do... Um Opinion polls suggest about how much social capital a leader has, so like President Yun, and how much of it he or she can spend on trying to build public support for something that's initially unpopular, like the deal with Japan and the restoration of summit diplomacy and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's really interesting because most politicians, we, we often talk about them in that way, that you know they have approval rates, they mm. have political capital right. to spend. How are they going to spend it? Is it a good use of it? Is it a bad use of it? Yeah. And because he came into the presidency without his own base, you know, he's an outsider of the party. Yeah. He didn't even have a power base within the party, mm -hmm. really. And now he's only, only just getting to consolidate it ahead of the elections next year. He doesn't really seem to care about political capital. Um, he's, Which he's, is, that, that, that seems like an outlier, right? That, yeah. That's unusual in politics. Yeah. Yeah. He's taken a number of, of very unpopular moves, you know, not only to deal with Japan, but also yeah. the, the, what was it, 69-hour right. work week. That, that seems to have died now, though, yeah, right? because thanks to uh, Generation that, Z pushing that, back. Yeah, that was a move to put money directly into older people's pockets, uh, right? Because they retire early. They're right. looking for jobs. They're trying to earn more money on, on the side. Yeah. And so by extending the work week, they could possibly... Uh, earn more money. But yeah, the young people, and if you looked at the numbers on that, blue-collar workers were mostly for it. White-collar workers and younger workers were highly against it. Mm. And so that those, that started to come out, and yeah, they they killed it off. But he was willing to push some unpopular 
uh, areas. Yeah. And so it really looks like he he doesn't mind the controversy, doesn't care about political capital, and he has a vision for what he thinks that where the country should go. Right. Although it's not quite clear to anyone else what that vision is, but there are steps being put in place. But in order to make something like, say, the uh, the Japan deal uh, have some longevity beyond his own single five-year term, he has to build up some support for that. I mean, somehow support for that has to grow, doesn't it? It, it does. And I haven't seen them really taking steps. Maybe you can correct me if you've seen steps no. they're taking to to try to, to push that. In fact, they seem to and want to inflame it whenever they can. They Boy. allowed the, the, the Japanese... A ship to dock in Busan, mm. I believe, fly, fly, flying the the rising sun flag, yeah. which was obviously not popular. But you know, if if you look at it more broadly, perhaps I think there are a lot of comparisons that have been drawn to Park Geun Hye, mm-hmm. I think somewhat incorrectly, in how the the Comfort Women deal fell apart. Mm. But I think that was a little bit different because obviously she was impeached. Yeah. Uh, the runway for that deal was already going to be shorter, and then got dramatically shorter, and right. then was tainted by her presidency. Whereas he has four years, he's got yeah. And you know, as I talk to my friends uh, about this, uh, who are also thinking about this, they're highly skeptical that that it will last. They think the Democratic Party will come in and try to sweep it away. I'm a little more optimistic hmm. uh, because why would I mean? I shouldn't put it past them. Perhaps yeah. they will come in and try to undo it. I don't see what they would really gain from that, but they still may may try to do just that. But yeah, I haven't seen efforts uh, within the administration to build. On, on this, you know, they're they're still pursuing mm. uh, relations with with the U.S. and Japan, kind of trilaterally. Right. They're looking at uh, sharing radar data, mm-hmm. which I'll be interested to see if if they actually did that for the the launch that right. happened yesterday. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Have you seen any reports no, I don't, on I, that? I don't know if it's come out yet. Uh, yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, to uh, to finish off the conversation on uh, on cap, uh, polit- using political capital, I'm, I imagine that the fact that South Korean presidents are limited to a single five year term, they can't run for re-election, That's got to factor into that somehow. Uh, yeah, it does. And I think the, the big piece of this will be for his political capital is what happens in next year's elections. Ah, right. So 2024, right now he's so handicapped on anything domestic. So pension reform, mm. which everybody agrees pension reform needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Education reform needs to happen. Yep. Labor force reform, there is a big push for, but he can't do any of that if he doesn't have the National Assembly. And if he loses, if his party loses the election next year, even if they gain seats but don't get the majority, you're looking at five years of his term without without ever being able to pass a single significant domestic agenda item. Goodness. Uh, and, you know, that could be really damaging. But I think that's how you build political capital is, is passing things through the agenda in some yeah. ways, not just, you know, by fiat on foreign policy. Okay, now let's uh, move on to the uh, South Korean public's views on South Korea getting its own nuclear weapons or stationing uh, U.S. nuclear weapons. What's the current level of support for South Korea developing uh, its own nuclear weapons? So it's going to be the same as it's been just about over the past 10 years between 66 and probably 73%. It's always, it fluctuates within there. Uh, the last time we did this polling at the end of 2021, that was with my, my colleagues uh, at, at the Carnegie Endowment, Toby Dalton, and at the U.S. Army uh, War College, Lamy Kim. We had, had, had done this study and we found, I think, 71%, so between 70 and 71. And we may have had to round up on that. Do you have any idea, I mean, is that high compared to other countries? Are there other countries that, that have been polled on this that have similar high figures, or is Korea really an outlier? No, that's a, a good question. Obviously, it's much higher than Japan. I, mm. I do know that we've seen polling come out of Japan, but other countries I, I don't really know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I know, um, I can't think of another country that's really having an active debate on this. And, you know, I, I would also say that, you know, I, I mentioned this this active debate part. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when we were polling on this starting in 2010, there yeah, wasn't really there wasn't an active, there wasn't an active you couldn't debate. say that in public. Yeah, you couldn't say it in public. That that started to change, but you know now there's a line of thinking that says the the politicians are taking the public opinion polling and using that to say, well, the the Korean public wants it and they want to push it, right? And say, you know, this is we're only we're only responding to the interest of the public. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe the, I have maybe some sympathy for that view. But then why wasn't that happening 10 years ago? The numbers were the same. And that is something I, yeah, I wanted to pick up on that, that, uh, that the numbers kind of move a little bit between a floor and a ceiling mm-hmm. that have been steady for the last decade. Mm-hmm. So is that a sign then that, that North Korea's actions, whether you call them provocations or not, um, don't really have much effect on uh, South Korean public opinion about having nukes? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I mean, I, yeah, sorry, the, to go back. So the first test was in 2006. Uh, and if, if you've been looking at figures for the last 10 years, so that's after the first test, more or less the same, regardless of whether there's been some tests, no tests, ICBM tests, et cetera, it, it seems to not move. Right. Yeah. And so it's almost perfectly flat line for a decade. That's fairly unusual uh, in, mm. in a lot of polling that we do. You know, it'll be responsive to events that happen. Yeah. But this is just not. And so it's really come to a head over the past year, more or less, mm. of this conversation starting to happen. And of course, they want to some some of the critics of of the polling we've done will say, well, you know, that's you're, you're, you shouldn't be putting this out. It's driving the conversation. It's allowing presidents or not presidents, but politicians mm. to to kind of glom on to this. But the reality is, is that I see this as being driven by the dysfunction of U.S. politics. Say more about that. So what we see is that obviously we know under Donald Trump, he was basically threatening to number one extort them. Yeah, for for the, the yeah for for the status of not the status of forces but the the special Stash, measures yeah, agreement right and then you know he had also said there were kind of vague threats that he was going to withdraw the troops that right. he to end the alliance end altogether the alliance, yeah. and so now where are we we're getting back into the election cycle in the U S far too early if you you yeah. ask me I can't believe that's already coming back around yeah uh, but here we are with uh, Donald Trump standing a significant chance of being the nominee for the GOP. Uh, whether or not he'll win is a different question. But even if he's nominated, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a big signal to our allies that this is not a one-time thing. But these numbers have been the same, or similar um, for 10 years, and it's well before Trump came in. And that's, uh, what, let's say if we start from 2012, that was when uh, Barack Obama was president. So tell us more about that. Right. So it's not that those drive the public numbers, but it changes the, the conversation among the foreign policy elite. Ah. So now the politicians are more willing to discuss it because they see a, a larger risk. So the public doesn't quite react to that. Right. But, you know, there's always a, a line of thinking that, yes, the public support is at 70%. Yeah. But if you actually went and talked to the foreign policy elite, there would be a huge gap between yeah. those things. So I, I haven't seen any studies done on that, mm-hmm. but that support might be 20%, 30%. I have a feeling if we do that study now, those, that gap between the public and the elite is not going to be as, not, will not be as big as everyone assumes that it will be. What that number is, I don't know, but I don't think it's 20 or 30% of the foreign policy elite that are in favor of, of nuclear weapons, probably more 40 to 50% mm. at this point and growing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's largely being driven by just the dysfunction in the United right. States. So they're now more willing to talk about it, more willing to take it on uh, in public. And one of the, the the factors that's really interesting is that in such a polarized society as Korea, there is no opposition. No one's coming out and saying we shouldn't do this. You know, you would think that you have the conservatives out there arguing more strongly for it. The Democratic Party is quiet. They have said very little in opposition. I, I, seemed, I vaguely seem to recall a time when... Uh, when President Yoon talked publicly about 
uh, yeah, getting nuclear weapons. And the, the Democratic Party did say something in, in response to that that was negative, but I, I don't remember exactly what it was now. Oh, I, I may have missed that. Um, I know that it's been, within the polling data at least, uh, both both conservatives and and Democratic Party supporters are in favor at almost the same levels. That's really, really interesting. Yeah, okay, so, so almost at the same levels. Okay. Yeah. But so, but if that's if that's a, if the public opinion is not swayed by um, North Korea's actions too much, doesn't that mean that South Korean politicians can choose to ignore it if they don't see it as being in the country's best interest? Yeah, they absolutely could. But you're you're suggesting that the elites themselves now are becoming more interested in getting nukes because of what they see as the dysfunction in the U.S. And so, at a certain point, those figures may come close enough together to align. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things in further studies, uh, future studies, that we should really be thinking about is the different drivers between them, right? Because when we look at the drivers among the public, the general thought is, the, the, the working theory I think in the past was that as the US becomes more credible mm. in defending South Korea, mm -hmm. the public appetite for nuclear weapons would decline, that those two things would work inversely. What about the stationing of the THAAD battery here in 2017? Was that not a sign of the US being more credible? Right, so the, the public actually thinks the US is credible. It's about 65, 70% might be a little bit lower, might be around 60%, yeah. says that the U.S. is credible. Uh -huh. And what happens is... And is, they want nukes. And they want nukes. Those two numbers move together. Mm. So the more likely you think, or the public thinks, or a respondent thinks, the more likely the U.S. is to defend South Korea, yeah. the more likely they are to also pursue a nuclear weapons program. So Lauren Sukin, I don't know, I'm sorry, I don't know where she's affiliated with. I think she's in London mm -hmm. at this point. She wrote a paper a few years ago, and she coined what I, I think I think she coined the term unwanted use theory, that the U.S. was too credible, that it would be too quick to escalate in, uh. in a conflict with North Korea and then put South Korea at risk uh -huh. of retaliation yeah. in a way that the U.S. would not be in retaliation. So they want to have better control right. over that. And so that's what's driving them. But I think what's happening on the foreign policy elite side mm -hmm. is not unwanted use theory. They're looking at abandonment. And so you have the public and the foreign policy elite looking at two different things and, and driving them in, in two different ways. Given that then, I mean, has any polling been done on whether there's a difference in feeling about South Korea having its own nuclear weapons or uh, U.S. nuclear assets being restationed in South Korea as they were until 1991? Uh, yeah, in the, the study I did with Toby and Lamy, we asked specifically that. Ah. So we asked, the, the first question was about the placement of U.S. tactical nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for, for the polling nerds out there who care about, care about question wording, we did not use the word redeploy because uh, that implies that, well, it's already been done once, so right. it must be fine to do it again. Right. We just use deployment Got it. Uh, and try to, to make it as neutral as possible. And it's been a while since I looked at those numbers, but I think the numbers were in the mid-60s in support of a return of U.S. tactical nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Then we asked a follow-up question about support for a nu domestic nuclear weapons program. That was 71%. And then the third question was, if you had to choose between the two. Right. And then the support for U.S. tactical nuclear weapons falls dramatically. Ha. Huh. So down to a significant minority. Yeah. And it's something like 67% right. want domestic program. Yep. And I, I could be misstating this number, but I, I think the support for tactical nuclear weapons was in the high single digits. It fell that dramatically. So there really, there is a lot of gap there between yeah. those two numbers. That's interesting. Okay. Ever wondered what lies beyond the inter-Korean border? NK News brings you an opportunity to explore North Korea from a near distance. From October 8 to 17, 2023, 
Journey with us on the second ever North Korea from a distance tour, visiting key border locations and observatories looking into North Korea, as well as meeting key figures working on DPRK issues. Spend two nights on the East Coast, see the beautiful Kumgang Mountains, scour the beaches near the inter-Korean border, and see Kim Il-sung's old summer house. Visit Yonpyongdo, the location of the November 2010 inter-Korean artillery bombardment. Observe North Korean hamlets from close quarters in Kanghua and delve deep into the heart of Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Every step of the way, you'll be guided by leading NK News and Cordio Tour staff and be joined regularly for multi-day portions of the itinerary by leading experts like Andre Lankov, Chad O'Carroll, Jongmin Kim, Jack Oswetsud and Gergovacci of Cordio Tours. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, quote podcast when making your booking for an exclusive 10% discount. Find out more at nknews.org slash tour. Once again, that's nknews.org slash tour and use the, the code podcast when booking. Let's journey into the unknown together. You recently did an analysis for NK Pro entitled How an Aging Population and Fiscal Conservatism Are Shaping Rock Defense Spending. This is not based on opinion polling, but on expenditure statistics. Uh, first of all, how are demographic pressures starting to bite in Korea? You've got an aging population, you've got very, very few pe- people having children, which means obviously for a, uh, a conscription-based army, you're going to have a smaller military force in future. So what are we seeing here in, in terms of spending? Yeah, uh, on the demographic side, those numbers have already started to bite. I believe there was a, a paper out in 2018 that cited, and this might have been on the Ministry of Defense website as well, that in 2018, the, the numbers in the army were something like 620,000. Uh, now in 2022, they were down to 500,000. Right? So those numbers have fallen quickly. Obviously, wow. they're going to fall much further. And one of the ways that South Korea is going to try to combat that is by increasing wages to the, not only the conscripts, but also to the, the NCOs. So right. that the so NCOs grow the professional army and the conscription army. Right. And so the conscripts will no longer see this as two years and I'm done. Yeah. You know, by increasing the wages, the thought is, is that, well, they'll see this as a legitimate career. Yeah. That they'll be able to buy a house, that they'll be able to have a family, yep. get married, do all the things they want to do by right. staying in the professional military and then, you know, kind of advancing through their careers there. The, the issue is is as this has been done, you know, there have been increases within within the defense budget. I think the increase that was done this year was, well, I can't recall that number. Um, it was 4 to 5%. It wasn't nearly as big as they were expecting. It might have been 4.4, 4.6%, I think, was the increase. Uh, but when you look down at the force operating costs, that is a huge chunk of this. Uh, if you look at force operating costs versus defense uh, capabilities. And then even within that, it's like 91% of the increase is, is going into wages, mm. right? And so- Rather than hardware. Right, and so that's eating up a lot of the, the budget overall. And so yeah. that's going to, to be an issue because once you put the wages in place, you can't very well roll them back. No, because no, they become an entitlement. Right. right, and so the Democratic Party is probably unlikely to roll them back. I don't think the conservatives can roll them back. Yeah. And so it's going to put this squeeze on the defense capability uh, procurement. Now, what they're trying to do to combat that, I think, is obviously they're going to try to export more. Yes. Uh, so they'll they'll be exporting, whether it's into Poland, whether it's into Southeast Asia, right. uh, selling all of these kind of legacy platforms that they have. And the other part of their budget is now focused on next generation platforms, right? So it's going to be AI. It's going to be unmanned uh, vehicles and, and all of these other things and the core technologies to support all of that. So I think they're, they're in somewhat of a sweet spot on the defense side that they know their legacy platforms are good. They know that they can sell them. They're operable interoperable, 
with U.S. platforms, and they're highly sought after at mm. a time when the world is really buying a lot of arms due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, and so now is the time if they're going to do that to really look at the core technologies that are going to drive their next phase of investment and hopefully create platforms that can then be sold in, in the next round of this. Right, and that, that's obviously uh, figures into uh, President Yun planning to uh, to lock in five percent of the global defense export market by just twenty twenty seven. So that's only four years from now. So uh, already South Korea is, uh, I think, by volume, it's the number four or five largest a- exporter in the world, just behind France, if I'm not mistaken. So this is quite significant. Do you have anything more to say on that? Yeah, I think that's you know that idea that there South Korea is going to be able to push this out is. I don't want to say fanciful, but I think it is optimistic, right? Because they had these legacy platforms in the past several years. It's not Which, that, so when you say legacy platform, right? so the K9 howitzers, the the tanks that they've sold into into Poland, yeah. especially, they've had all those ready, but there wasn't a big market for them. Mm. Um, you know, people were buying them in, in in kind of bits and pieces, but then suddenly there have been really big deals that have pushed up the numbers, right? And how many really big deals are you going to sign over the course? Of, you know, are you going to sign one every year? I think that's unlikely, right? So this this push. To, to drive in, uh, to push to, to get those, those arms out it is going to be somewhat of a challenge. Um, but I, I do think one of the good things that they're doing on the defense side is that they're starting to decentralize production. And what I mean by that is, you know, Korea's economy in general is dominated by large companies. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, it's conglomerates, it's Samsung's, it's SK's, it's Hyundai's. Now it's making an effort to bring in SMEs. Right, so the those big companies aren't going to be able to do all of the programming, all of the technology work that is going to drive the the, the next platforms and the and these these core technologies. So they're bringing in SMEs to do that, ah. uh, and so that will then broaden out the defense space yep. uh, and bring more people into the space. And at the same time, it sounds like they're going to uh, decentralize production, but then centralize locality. So I think they've they've established a base in Daegu, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's Daejeon. Oh, is it Daejeon? That's close to the uh, the headquarters of the Rock Army, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so they're, they're going to have this kind of cluster and hopefully get the spillover effects from having this cluster of, of all these SMEs uh, located there as well. Right. Now, but how does that all uh, figure in uh, together with uh, President Yoon's commitment to fiscal conservatism and the current economic uncertainties in South Korea? Right. So the economic growth prospects, I think, have been slashed to 1.3%, 1.4% for Gosh. this year. For next year, I think they're already slashing those numbers. I saw the the most recent I saw, I think, was down to 1.6 or 1.5% for next year. And the midterm defense plan is aim, looking to average 68 or 7% increases over every year for five years. Wow. So obviously those numbers are, are going to be difficult to square, especially for a president who said, you know, the Moon administration was profligate. They spent too much on healthcare. Mm. They spent too much everywhere. So we are going to come in, you know, his first budget that he submitted to uh, the National Assembly in August of last year mm-hmm. actually called for something like a 6 to 7% decrease in overall government spending. Wow. And so uh, that probably wasn't on the defense side. Yep. He, he wants to continue to increase that. But how do you stay a fiscal conservative and, and still continue to increase the defense budget at the rates that they're, they're planning to do? Obviously, they're not going to get to 7%. Mm-hmm. I think you know, more likely we're going to see 45 to 5%. I think even 5% will be generous. But you know, at the same time, he's going to be cutting social spending, which is going to be highly unpopular uh, for much of the public as well. So that commitment to fiscal conservatism is going to put a squeeze on defense budgets down the road. Wow. Uh, okay, let's talk a bit about uh, President Yoon's inter-Korean policy or policy vis-a-vis North Korea. How do South Koreans in general view President Yoon's inter-Korean policy? I don't think they really think that much about it. You know, there's 
there, there's a broad realization for us, for as much as we think about the South Korean public being reactive, which we've already discussed there, they're not when it comes to, to North Korea, they're incredibly pragmatic. Right? If North Korea is, you know, quote unquote, behaving itself mm-hmm. and there are talks ongoing, the Korean public will favor that. Great. We're talking. This is a, a positive development. Right. And yes, let's continue to talk. If North Korea is, quote unquote, behaving badly, they're launching missiles, they are sinking ships, they're shelling islands then the Korean public swings mm-hmm. and they are much more in favor of a hardline policy. You know, the, the Regardless of, of their political affiliation. So I, have, I, don't, I don't know if I have the numbers on that, uh, like the, the partisanship, okay. but you know, I will say that in this, the, the crossover from Im Young-bak to Park Geun-hye, right? Yep. Im Young-bak at the end, he was seeking a, a summit with Kim, with Kim, Kim, with Jong-il. Kim Jong-il at that time. Wait, I, Wasn't it? No, it might have been Kim Jong Un. Yeah, the dates. Oops. No, you're right. The dates, Kim Jong Un. Um, yeah, I'm a, I can't can't quite put the, the timeline together as I'm speaking. Uh, but yeah, he was seeking a summit, but he still had a fairly hardline policy yeah. on North Korea. And I remember us asking a question at that time while I was at Asan that you know, do you favor this policy or should it be softened? I can't remember the the exact mm-hmm. wording, but essentially it came down to seventy percent support for either this policy, which was fairly hardline, or an even harder line policy towards North Korea. That was, it was about 70% altogether. And so the Korean public is willing to support basically any hmm. policy on North Korea. You know, and obviously there's going to be partisan divides sure. on that. But a lot of it is based on how they perceive North Korea's actions to yeah. affect that. Huh. Okay. Have you seen anything, any uh, uh, research or, or public polling about um, South Korean perceptions of President Moon Jae-in's policy at the time, but after the fact? So looking back and, you know, was it a good idea to, to try all of those, uh, those good things that were done from 2018 to, to, to 2022. So I, I don't recall seeing any of that, but my guess would be a lot of the public was highly supportive of a lot of that going on. You know, I his, think that they were in the moment. Yeah. I just wonder whether they still would be now in retrospect. You know, I, I don't think that in, in some ways that's probably beyond the public to really think back and tie those things together. Ah. I, for us, that's a natural question. Yeah. But for the public, they move on. Right, so they only consume those things in headlines uh, and drawing a through line between, well, wait a minute, we did all this, we yep. had these negotiations, and we're right back to the beginning. Yep. Um, I also think that you know, any kind of progress, progress of probably being a, an incorrect term in this case, but any time that we can talk to the North Koreans, uh, the South Korean public will say, yeah, that, that's great. doesn't mean it always works, mm-hmm. but we still have to continue to try to do that. Okay, which would, if I'm not mistaken, suggest that uh, there's very little impact that South Korean public opinion would have on actual government policy towards North Korea. Yeah, that's right. I, I don't think I don't think the government really has to consider that huh. um, unless they were going for you know some kind of military action. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, that would certainly concern the the South Korean sure. public. But anything short of that, yeah, I think the 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 South Korean president has a very free hand mm. in determining that without without much pushback from the South Korean public. Is that unusual? From I mean, comparing Korea to other countries. I don't think so. I mean, foreign policy usually has has very little impact on elections okay. yeah, uh, yeah. anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, even the, and presidents are able to kind of pursue what are broadly unpopular policies without that much impact on on their presidency. You know, Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan mm. was not very popular, mm. but he still was able to basically function, and and there wasn't a huge political capital spin right. from right. that. So I think you know that's one of the the distinctions that's made. People who follow foreign policy closely. Uh, they're, uh, they talk in terms of this is a disaster, that's a disaster. Uh, the public just doesn't see it uh, in those terms. Uh, let's go back to um, opinion polling on, on Japan. We've already talked about how 60% of, of South Koreans believe that uh, President Yoon's 
deal with Japan and overtures to Prime Minister Kishida um, were not, pos- not positively viewed. Uh, well, how about military cooperation and defense information sharing between Korea and Japan or Korea, Japan, and the U.S. in, in a trilateral way? How, how's that viewed? Yeah, on the, the GSOMIA stuff, uh, the general sharing of military information agreement, mm-hmm. I, I think, is, is the acronym that comes out of that. That sounds right. Yeah, you know, we, we, we did some polling on this in the past when they were first trying to get this signed, and the general public was fairly positive mm. towards GSOMIA. I mean, the politicians try to use it. They try to withdraw it. They yep. try to, to cut it down, yep. uh, especially under the progressives. That's somewhat partisan, but the conservatives are fine with it, and even a large chunk of the, the Democratic Party supporters are okay with it. I think the numbers that we were coming out with were 55%-ish were in favor of, of GSOMIA. And I can remember at the time that I started getting visits from Japanese uh, ministry officials yeah. coming to talk about those numbers mm. because they were looking at them and saying, okay, you know, the, the politicians are saying this is unacceptable. Yeah. The public is, is mostly in support. And so they continued to push on that door and eventually got, got it signed. But you know, they, they were looking at those, those numbers as well. Uh, so you know, I, I think that's a, a card that the politicians will play, mm-hmm. but the general public has an understanding that GSOMIA and military information agreement sharing is generally a net positive for South Korea's security. I think that's a, uh, I'm seeing a, a through line coming out in some of these issues here. I have to put a pin in and, and try to come back mm-hmm. to it at the end of this interview about just that, that gulf between uh, public opinion and, and political maneuvering at the top and, and you know, uh, use of the issues as political tools or weapons by the, by the elites. Yeah. And, you know, again, on a lot of the issues, it kind of comes and goes on foreign policy. I think they ignored a little bit more, but on domestic policy, I think they listen a lot more. And, and the work week thing we discussed uh, mm. uh, earlier is one good example where you get public right. backlash and, and you'll see them reverse quite quickly. So let's talk about the, uh, the US-ROK alliance. This year, 2023, marks 70 years since the signing of the Korean War Armistice Agreement that brought an end to the active fighting of the Korean War. And also the signing of this, the 70th anniversary of the signing of the ROK US military mutual defense treaty. Uh, how do South Korean citizens feel about the US-ROK alliance, broadly speaking? So the numbers on that have been incredibly positive for at least a decade. And when I say incredibly positive, I'm talking like 85 to 90 percent That is high. are supportive of the alliance. There, there's probably one minor caveat, again, for, for the polling nerds who care about question wording. Mm-hmm. A lot of those question words are question wording use the word necessary. Yeah. So it's not do you support or oppose, it's right. is it necessary. Right. And so that is a whole, a completely different connotation. But you know that's the standard way that it's asked here. Yep. And so when it is asked that way, 85 to 90 percent say that it's a necessity. And you know a lot of that is down to partially good management on I think on the side of the United States. You know their relations reached a real low, or views of the the mm-hmm. the alliance reached a real low post 2002. Sure. When the the two young girls were killed along the side of the road uh, yep. following a U.S. military exercise. That, you know, they sparked wide anti-American protests yeah. all, all around the city. And since then, I think the U.S. has done a much better job of managing that relationship, right? That when there is a problem with soldiers, they, they are more quickly to take care of it. I think yeah. they are now putting them on trial as well here rather than trying to shield them mm. in, in a lot of cases. And so there's been a real reversal in views of the U.S. and the U.S. military and the alliance overall. With regard to the presence of, we still have about 28,000 or so U.S. troops Mm -hmm. in South Korea. Is it fair to say that out of sight is out of mind? I'm just thinking that now that U.S. soldiers are mostly outside Seoul, right? You've got a a big concentration in Camp Humphreys and a big concentration in uh, Dongducheon at Camp Casey. And there have been fewer crimes and other incidents reported in the mass media lately that the base 
feeling of South Koreans is at least neutral, if not favorable? That may be part of it. You know, I, I lived in the area around the base for four or five years. Oh, which one? Um, near Yongsan. Oh, okay. like, so I was up in, in kind of the Yongnidan yes. uh, area. And so you, if you're there in that area, you can't miss the base. I don't recall ever seeing soldiers that often, even though I was living around there. But the base is, is essentially unmissable. Right. So uh, the out of sight, out of mind, even if the soldiers are there or are not, the, the walls are still there. The barbed wire is yeah, still there. Yeah. And the, the signs marking this as U.S. federal government property mm -hmm. uh, are still there. So that may be part of it. You know, this was an add-on to a survey I did years ago where we asked about the U.S. military presence. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, it was kind of positive, negative. And then we asked the respondents to kind of guesstimate how close they were to the nearest base. Oh, and, and then we correlated that. We also had some, some geolocation data so you can look at their zip codes or whatever it is yep. about, about where these respondents are. And the, the respondents that were the least likely to say they lived near a military base were in Seoul. Mm -hmm. Even though There's Seoul... Yongsan. Yeah. And wow. Yongsan is right in the middle of the city. And yeah. anywhere you are in Seoul, you're not that far. No. It might take you an hour or two to get yeah, there yeah, <laughs> based yeah. on traffic. Yeah. But you're not that far. So the Seoul residents really didn't feel the U.S. presence. They were the least likely. So it's really, in a way, it's, it's uh, funny. It's, it's like uh, cacao maps and naval maps where uh, Yongsan is just, uh, you know, photoshopped over to this <laughs> giant park that doesn't exist because yeah, right. we're not allowed to see it for security reasons. Yeah. And it, it, it seems that that's actually uh, crept into Korean people's minds, those who live in Seoul, at least, that yeah. uh, they're not near a base, they're near some giant park. Yeah, and, you know, I, I guess helicopters go in and out, but you don't have airplanes taking off or right. jets taking off in and out of there. I don't see a lot of, at least I never saw a lot of traffic coming in and out. Mm -mm. But if you're in a more rural area, yep. you hear it more. Yep. The the military uh, vehicles are obviously going to be more obvious to you as well. Whereas here, they're just kind of lost in the larger, larger soul picture. Now, about the uh, recent U.S. document leak scandal allegedly revealing that the U.S. spying uh, spies on its allies in Korea... Who did that help or harm in Korea in terms of popularity, or did it have any effect on uh, views towards the alliance? So I don't think it had any effect on views towards the alliance. Okay. Right? The, those, those remain solid, and I think there's an expectation, or at least tacitly, that, mm. yeah, okay, of, this is what countries do to one another, mm. even if they're allies and they shouldn't. The frustration from the Korean public came with the Yoon, Yoon administration's response. First, they said the, the documents were fabricated, yeah. and they said, which, I mean, come on. We all kind of, if you were following this issue any what closely about the, the, the issue they were talking about was resupplying Ukraine with weapons, oh, uh, yeah. with, with ammunition, I think it was. And the conversations that were caught were between the then national security advisor and someone, I don't remember who the, the counterpart was. Mm -hmm. But those conversations that were, were kind of caught looked very similar to the actual conversations that we were all hearing, all yeah. talking about that were kind of, kind of leaking out. So, but the first response from the administration was, well, these are fabricated. You know, we know these documents are fake, which no one believed that. And then it went from that to, well, yes, they maybe did it, but they didn't mean it. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have any illicit or what was the word that Kim Tae-hyo used? Uh, maybe it was illicit intent or malicious intent, malicious I believe, intent, right. was, was the, the phrase that he used. And that created, that was a week or two later, right before the summit, and that started the scandal all anew. Yep. And so it really brought out this sense of, oh, and one last thing I'll mention on that, is it also came on the heels of the Japan kind of reconciliation. Yes. So it fed this broader sense that Yoon's foreign policy was really about subservience. Mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, yes, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll do this with Japan just to move on. And then, yes, well, the U.S. did this to us, but they didn't mean it. There was no malicious intent. But then there came the payoff of the state dinner. Right? So it kind of looked like a quid pro quo that we'll downplay this. 
as long as we get this other side uh, uh, of what we're going for. So the effects were really directed at the UN administration and the U.S. alliance was somehow mm. totally walled off because of it. You mentioned that the, the Democratic Minju Party likes to paint President Yoon's foreign policy as being largely subservient to the United States. Does this help the approval ratings for the Minju Party or its individual politicians, or does it have very little effect? In terms of how that's going to affect them, yeah, okay, there is some anti-American strain probably within, within the Minju Dong, mm. but painting his foreign policy as subservient I don't think helps their standing that much. And it, it's, again, because they're speaking to their base. Right, everyone who is is looking at the UN administration has essentially already made up their mind. Ah, yeah. And Back are to the Rorschach they, test. yeah, are they really going to peel off, you know, any number of significant voters by mm -hmm. by saying that? Every all those people are looking at it for themselves and have already seen that. Okay, yes, we we know what's going on here. They've made up their minds, and so yeah, they they can kind of come out and continue to say it publicly. But I don't think that's going to sway the public whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the Washington declaration that was made by Presidents Biden and Yoon during uh, uh, Yoon's trip to the U.S. early in May. Uh, you said to AFP that, quote, a major problem is not the agreement, but the U.S. political landscape, which means the agreement could be worthless after the 2024 political election there. Do you want to say anything more about that? I mean, in some ways, we've talked about this already with the political dysfunction that's that's mm. ongoing within the United States and the fact that the debt ceiling is always an issue, the fact that we have what in, in my, my view, that we have a Republican Party that is, is bordering on or is clearly extremist in its stance. Uh, the fact that, you know, we, they are getting ready potentially to nominate uh, Donald Trump again. Mm. Yeah. So are they going to be bound by this Washington Declaration? Is that going to supersede their commitments to the, the NPT? You know, certainly not, right? So the MPT is clearly the more significant document. It's the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. Yeah, and so you know, I I think if Donald Trump comes back in again, we're going to see the foreign policy elite really start to to amp up on on this what they're going to do if the ROK U.S. alliance is put in trouble, and that is inevitably going to include more discussion about nuclear weapons. You uh, mentioned that the uh, the Chicago Council also does a polling about how Americans feel about the U.S. How do Americans feel about the alliance? Is, is there broad support in the Republic, pro-Republican voters to scrap the alliance? No. Uh, that is almost exclusively a Donald Trump piece of the platform. Mm. But because he has said it so vociferously, yeah. you have to take it seriously. That, and his base is so committed and the rest of the Republican Party seems so scared mm. of that base that if he's going to push on that, yeah. that it's something that the South Koreans need to take, take seriously. They can't rely on Congress uh, to potentially... Uh, act as a roadblock. Now, the, the American public more broadly is highly supportive of South Korea, and it's only grown over time. You know, huh. over the past couple of years, I think it's, I can't remember what the numbers are, 65, 70% favorable ratings. Of the country in general, you mean? Yeah, of the country in general. Okay. Uh, and that, that, you know, is on the back of movies like Parasite. It's on the back of BTS and all the Netflix dramas. Squid that, Game, yeah. Squid Game, yeah. Yep. Those, those have been incredibly impactful. I mean, it used to be that that you could rarely find Korean restaurants yeah. in the U.S. Those are now popping up everywhere. I have a, a former colleague who is from Iowa, and she was saying that her uh, nephews and nieces were trying to learn Korean wow. in the middle of Iowa, but just based on listening to K-pop and Goodness. all these dramas. So there's been a real ripple effect of that out. And you know, and some, sometimes I'm guilty of this too. I kind of scoff at the influence of how, how impactful those things can actually be. Right. But there is a lot of evidence there that, yeah. that it's rippling out. But it's, it, so there, it does seem to be a legitimate fear that if Donald Trump should get in again, that he could just simp simply single-handedly disregard U.S. public feeling towards South Korea and the alliance and just single-handedly scrap it and, and wouldn't be stopped. Yeah, so the, the scrapping of it, I think, is a little more 
complicated. I think okay. there would Congress would have to be involved uh-huh. in some way. But even if he, he starts pushing on that, yep. yeah, we all know the reality, but the South Koreans, I think, cannot trust in, in that way that, yes, okay, there are backstops here. Because as we've been learning over the past five to six yep. years, that a lot of what we think U.S. institutions are, are legally backed is a lot. A lot of that is just done kind of on, on everyone. Well, everyone agrees that it, it's right. a, the system should be the way it is. Yep. But as soon, as soon as someone challenges it, a lot of it feels very shaky. This may be outside your wheelhouse, but is there anything that South Korea can do to prepare for that? Or is it just like trying to prepare for a freak storm or earthquake? Oh, yeah. On, on the preparation side, I really think they should be thinking about or reviewing what the Moon Jae-in administration did. Mm-hmm. And I think there are, are going to be parallels uh, to that, right? So number one, they need to get, get ahead of the game. And a lot of that is going to have to do with announcements about procurement. Right. If they're thinking about another Republican candidate coming in, all of that is going to be about investment in the U.S. Mm. Right? We've seen a lot of that under the Biden administration. Right. Sure. Um, I can't. I can't remember all of them offhand, but I think S.K. Hynix has ta- is talking about opening fabrications yeah. in the U.S. There are lots of investments coming in, and so they should be coming up with strategies beforehand, and especially on the military side. What do we need in terms of F-35s? Yeah. Well, what do we need in terms of ships, missiles, all of that stuff? Because if a Republican wins and there's going to be pressure on the alliance, that's one way to alleviate it. To say, okay, make big announcements for these huge packages of military arms that, can, that are going to, to flow money back in, into the U.S. and defense contractors. I would say you don't often have to follow through on them in the whole, but right. you have to make a big show of announcing them. Yep. Uh, and that may be one way to start to defray pressure on, on South Korea. And that's one way in which I suppose the, the centralization of South Korean business in a small number of, of large conglomerates can really play well, that the, that the South Korean government can coordinate with them to make these big announcements, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Would, you suggest, would you say that, that uh, polling in the United States shows that uh, Donald Trump is a strong contender to get the Republican nomination at the very least? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all of the polls show him 10, 15, 20 points up on Ron DeSantis. And, you know, it's... Say what, say what you will about Donald Trump, but he does have a magical way mm. of denigrating his opponents mm. and then somehow knocking them out of the race with a single verbal blow. Yeah. And so is there any confidence that he will not do the same to Ron DeSantis? Right. I mean, the, the clear through line here is going to be that when he gets ready to get into a, bait, a debate with Ron DeSantis or, or something, you know, he's going to say, well, this is the man who took on Mickey Mouse and couldn't win. Right. And it's going to be an immediate punch to DeSantis yeah. and there's going to be no response. Uh, yeah. And so I think that is, is going to be one of, one of the many jabs that will be thrown that DeSantis will be unable to survive. Uh, what's, what's been the appraisal of, uh, of Donald Trump's attempts to, uh, to make a deal with Kim Jong-un? And could that suggest a likelihood that things might swing back in that direction if Trump is in fact re-elected? Yeah, the appraisal of those deals has been, I think, largely negative, right? Mm. They, they were substance-free, they accomplished nothing, and they brought us right back to where we are. Uh, perhaps even buying time for Kim Jong-un to, to uh, advance the program further. Uh, so if he comes back into office, I would expect to see another cycle of that, right? There will be another cycle of, of provocations. You can term that however you want, whether it's missile launches, yep. whether it's, it's something more kinetic. Uh, then, you know, perhaps we'll, we've, we've seen him recently refer to the red button again or the big button on oh, his dear. desk. So, I, you know, he, he seems to like that rhetoric and he may try to, to dial it up. And he's nothing if not a showman, right? He understands that you have to have a buildup before you can have uh, the payoff. And so, yeah, I would expect another cycle of provocations and then followed up by more symmetry uh, just because, you know, he wants to be the center of attention. Mm. Anything you'd like to add, Carl? Anything I missed? 
No, I think we've covered it. But it is interesting. We should keep an eye on that gap between what the the public believes and and how elites believe and and how they use things. Yeah, I'm really hoping that someone will find the funding to do an elite survey here in Korea. Elite Ah. surveys are not easy. You've got to get access to the people who normally would say, I'm too busy for this. Yes, a lot of email addresses collecting, a lot of pushing those surveys out. They take a lot of time. And then you're still always uncertain about how big a sample you're going to get. Yeah. But it would be if someone, you know, if any listeners out there have the funding and want to do that, I'd be happy to discuss well how to how to formulate the questions, how to formulate the the surveys, and perhaps pursue something together. So I'll just throw that out there. It sounds like something your former employer, the Asan Institute, would both be good at and be interested in. Yeah, and there there has been a push to do it, but the the reason a lot of people don't do it is it just takes so many hours right. to actually do. And the results, you can never quite be sure what you're going to get out of them in terms of just the response rates and how many people will answer those surveys. Okay, well, thank you very much, Carl Friedhoff, for coming on the podcast today. Marshall M. Bouton Fellow for Asia Studies at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. You can find Carl on Twitter at Carl Friedhoff. That's finishing with two Fs. Attention, North Korea portfolio professionals. Are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news-gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org professionals. Our thanks, as always, to Brian Betts and Arius Dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer, genius Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and puts in the ads. Thank you very much for listening in next time. Yeah.